Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome back to That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. Today, I'm joined by Tara O'Sullivan, VP of Marketing at Omnipresent. Tara has over 25 years of experience in B2B technology and marketing and has led roles at Amidas, Skillsoft, Oracle, and Iona Technologies. So as you can tell, I'm about to talk to a B2B marketing superstar. And today I talked to Tara about her passion for B2B marketing. We talk about the psychology of selling, the importance of talking to customers, and she has this wonderful loss review process that she tells me about. We talk about her key beliefs of adding to the bottom line and the importance of the sales relationship, as well as some of the things she didn't believe before, but has changed her view on. I hope you enjoy this. Tara, thanks a million for joining me. And that's what I call marketing. Great to have you here today. Delighted to be here, Connor. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. Now, look, as I said in my intro, you have amazing uh, experience in marketing. I'd love to start with just what got you into marketing? Um, So I was uh, 14 years old and I read um, Vance Packard's The Hidden Persuaders, which is a book all about how marketing was done very early on. So like how the cigarette companies realized they weren't making enough money. So they decided cigarettes could help you lose weight. And it was a whole other demographic of women. And it was really aimed towards women. So that like really blew my mind. Fascinated with the psychology of okay. selling and the psychology of, of buying and why you buy. Really cool. And then my dad uh, set up digital in Ireland. So he set up kind of the sales part of it. So we always had technology in the house. So I remember like programming basic and it's saying hello Tara and thinking oh my god this is incredible and all that kind of stuff so the tech side kind of went very much along with the marketing side and unfortunately in college at the time um, I did uh, business and economic studies in Trinity and you actually waited till third and fourth year to do marketing marketing and then it was John Cotler's four P's which is like snooze fest so (laughs) I did my master's then in international marketing which is a bit more interesting yeah and um, so, yeah, that's how I got in. Amazing. Because it's, you know, some people have, I think, a path that's quite, you know, like you, you know, it's like, oh, my God, I something happened, you know, when I was a teenager. And this is like, yeah, I spoke to Paul Dervin. He was exactly the same. Like he yeah. remembers the Levi's ad. He's like, that yes. was the moment. Had um, it all over my walls. In my yeah, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and you've continued on on through through that path. Um, you're you know, your your current role and the kind of the more recent roles as well, you're very much in, I, I guess, and sorry, correct me if I'm wrong, the B2B yeah, part always of have since the very start. Yeah, what? I've always done B2B. Yeah, what? I love what? it. Why? Why was or is that? Because like, um, you know, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so, so I, I um, did my, uh, I went to college. I did all the, which obviously they didn't do, do anymore. I did all the Saturday mornings doing the, um, the psychometric tests for all the KPMG and Irish life and all that kind of stuff. And I um, got no's from everybody. So a lot of people who were in my marketing class were going to London to stock shelves, right? Which was kind of seen as a brand um, runner kind of thing. And I was like, I'm not leaving Ireland. I really want to do something. And luckily um, somebody else in Irish life needed a marketeer. And I got a job working in the broker side of it, the business side of it, marketing to brokers, but then also marketing to um, customers, of course, like 
customers and corporates. So that was just, oh my God, being paid to go to college to understand the broker relationship and then to understand the kind of customer relationship then as well. And then after that, I went traveling for a year with my husband and then came back and worked in Iona Technologies, which was actually being paid to go to college because there was like one person in marketing, Tom Golden. He was doing the PR side. I came in and started doing loads of other stuff like events and demand gen and stuff like that. So the first two jobs really just set me up. And the reason I'm really interested in B2B is because everybody talks about this BS about how um, businesses behave in a different way than consumers about selling. And I actually think that's bullshit. I think actually it is all about human decision-making, whether it's protecting yourself so nobody gets fired for buying IBM or yeah. whether it's really trying to make innovation happen in an organization. So that's kind of, that's that was kind of my love, love of it, really. I love that. I, I do love that because I, I completely agree with that perspective you know I, I think we tend to put people in we do we put people in buckets and personas and da, 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 all this kind of stuff but like yeah when I if I drive into the office I'm listening to the same radio station that I listen to when I'm at home exactly. I don't all of a sudden switch into the the news station you know or pick up the FT yeah I read this the mirror <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly but that's I, the point um, but people for a long time I think have felt that it is a totally different um uh mentality, right? What's really interesting about B2B is that you're dealing with multiple people. So, you know, in Challenger Sale, it's all about the the supporter, the whatever, you know, there's all different roles people play. But I actually think at the bottom line, you're just dealing with humans and humans that don't want to make a mistake, humans that want to want you to make them look good. Um, and that's really the baseline of B2B marketing, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and often, uh, B2B, I guess the decision-making might be bigger and, and higher risk. And that might be the difference to your, your point about people not wanting to make the mistake. What role can marketing play in that? Because often that's the product, right? Like the mistake is if the product is bad, but what, what role yeah. can marketing play in, in that? So I think um, one of the really interesting things that's been happening over the last kind of 10, 15 years is that, um, a lot of the B2B purchase is done before they ever talk to a salesperson, right? So they're reckoning it's 57%. Some people reckon it's closer to 70%. So before they ever talk to a salesperson, they've actually either A, decided or B, certainly decided on the shortlist, right? Um, and I think um, what's really interesting now with tools like Qualified and Sixth Sense, where you can tell who's coming to your website, there's a really interesting way for marketing to interrupt that solo run and in a really nice way by giving them the data they want and the information that they need or introducing them to customers or whatever that is. And I think that's actually where marketing in the next five to 10 years with the technology we're going to have is going to change the whole B2B buying process. And there was a brilliant Harvard Business Review article a couple of months ago about how actually the selling process is going to become about the number and about signing the contracts. And actually the whole sales side will be done through that kind of 70 to 80 percent which is where it's going to go to because all the data is so available you know so i think marketing interrupting that that solo run and getting them the information that they need and um, in a very non you have to buy our product but actually educating them about the information i think that's really important 
there's loads there so much so much yeah. so <laughs> fascinating about that because it's so do you, when you say that kind of 70 80 percent of the process and, and marketing playing the role is the is the role of marketing to make sure that people have just the right information because like if i'm going i'm somebody says to me right connor go we need this new technology stack go and i'll go google and i'll search and i'll watch webinars and all that kind of stuff um but it's making sure then that marketing is kind of really inserting itself at that point to find exactly. it right okay and, and with the data that is really relevant to them right so for example omnipresent a couple of weeks ago released this on the academy course right and it's one of the things i'm this was underway before I ever came here. It's not my idea, but it's something I'm really obsessed with is that you're giving, you're elevating the profession, right? So um, in Amidas, when I worked with the Global Payroll Association, Melanie Pitsy, um, there was a real focus on payroll as a profession because LinkedIn doesn't allow it to be named as a profession when you're saying what you do. So we uh, sponsor that because we think it's really important, right? But it is about supporting the HR person, whoever's buying with the information that they need right so it's not about hoodwinking it's not about you know overselling it is actually just about making sure that they have what they need for it to be a really good RFP process that they will come out with the right thing even if it's not us right even if it's not us so do you yeah do you think then there's a job of in some instances of actually the category like grow the category like that's really interesting I never knew payroll was yeah yeah, yeah, really important. And one of the things in Amidas was that um, we did global payroll. So we were really focused on companies that were expanding globally and had five or more countries or whatever. But the whole concept of outsourced global payroll wasn't very well known. Yeah. So we put a huge amount of work into growing the um that like that concept of outsourcing. So we mentioned Amidas at the bottom. It was all about top ten things you need to know about or why global outsourcing is the thing. Um, we worked really closely with Gartner. They have a report that was really small and then it got really, really big because there were so many people involved in it. So um, the education piece is just critical to make the person the hero. You know what I mean? Yeah. And make sure that they, and, and we're not always the right person, right? So to make sure that they're actually selecting the right solution based on their specific needs. Yeah, because and I think that's really interesting as well. Some like you, you may not be the right solution. And 100%. actually then, then yep. buying you is the wrong thing because it's the wrong thing for you and your brand because those big purchase decisions, people talk and they're like, oh no, absolute disaster. <laughs> Don't work with them. But it's just yeah. it was the wrong solution. Exactly. Like person. Yeah. So every sale isn't a good sale. A right sale is probably the good sale. If that exactly. Makes any sense. And, and what's really interesting, right, is that you've all these people involved in the sale now, right? So when I worked at Skillsoft, $600 million learning company, like was the 800 pound gorilla in the, in the industry, LinkedIn's coming along. We're like, LinkedIn, no way. Uh, ours is so much better. And really, um, we then discovered that the people we were dealing with, which is learning and development, were having all their budgets taken away and being given to the director of IT, director of compliance, whatever that is. So number one, the decision making was going away from the only person we spoke to as Skillsoft and the only person who knew who we were. And it was going to other people who did not know who we were. And then secondly, 
the employees who had never had a say in what learning solution you bought. Suddenly with the talent wars, it was actually becoming a really important thing that the employees were getting a say in. So Skillsoft was not known by the employees and it wasn't known by the head of. So there was a whole piece of work we had to do to get the brand out there because we were really, really focused on learning and development. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. And it's how amazing. You, yeah. How amazing. do you go about understanding then that the, the decision makers? Because you're, you're right, like to, it's complex. It's a, you know, yeah. It gets more complicated. Yeah. I think um, what I try to do is anytime we lose a deal, do a loss review personally. So I talk to the, okay. sometimes it's procurement, sometimes it's the HR person. And I really try to understand uh, what went wrong. And there's two things there, right? There's, there's, we weren't right for it. And then I'm very happy and I walk away. And then there's the second part, which was we didn't do a good job. And that is, I'm obsessed with that and getting that back into the organization so that that never happens again, right? So we had a, we had a, an, an experience with, in Amidas, with a massive company where we, uh, for so, lots of different reasons, completely messed up the RFP. And I had a really good conversation with the um, HR person who was involved. And I said, you know, this isn't who we are. We really take pride in being able to do this really well. Um, it's really gutting that this is happening. And, and thank you so much because I'm learning so much. And it really became like a big thing for the company where my notes and the recording were shared with lots of people so that what? we understood that this is who we need to be six months on, I can't say that name, comes back to us and says, um, we want to give you another go because of how seriously you took the feedback. So that was really interesting. Yeah. That, yeah. That, so that's the kind of, the, I guess, the customer experience piece that fits within. Yeah. Not always within marketing, but probably has, has a role. It's, I, that's, I, I love the fact that you're actually making those calls that you are. Yeah, yeah. Because that's the insight, you know, exactly. get, getting close to the customer and um, and Gong's fab. I love Gong, but there is no comparison to to actually speaking to a human being yourself because they're all human beings. And amazingly, at the end of that call, she hung up this. She just went off in her kitchen because it was COVID, and came over with this thing that's saying if you're if you don't um, if you don't win, you're learning something like that. And I said, well, you've no idea where I'm going to take this stuff internally so that it never happens again. And uh, we got way better at that. Way that's, better. That's amazing. And then, do you do? insights like i mean that's great loss review insight but are you doing insights in the you know pre like kind of how do you like acquire customers and yes yeah, yeah we so we're obviously data obsessed the way everybody <laughs> is now um but we also really look at um when there's a fall off in all through the funnel we're looking at why that's happening and um, we have an incredible marketing ops person in here and and he is just obsessed with all of that kind of understanding the why it's not working and why they're falling out and um, omnipresent's a pretty new company we're about two and a half years old so and um, we haven't been doing a lot of basic demand gen stuff a lot of it has been word of mouth and okay. um, funding rounds and stuff like that. So I'm really putting in place a, like a proper demand gen process that, you know, from start to finish, we have to, we have to do really, really well. So, so that's all happening, which is great crack. Yeah. Big lift. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to ask you yeah, about kind of de- decision makers again, again, in terms of difficulty of reaching them I, I when when we were starting out kind of some of our more um 
like larger scale enterprise marketing at, at Indeed, one of the things that I went and did, this goes back maybe a couple of years anyway, I spoke to some of our senior leadership and I asked them, how, how, do you, how do people reach you? And I got like fascinating answers, which were, I ignore most of the emails I get. I don't yeah. respond to, you know, in mail, all that kind of stuff. So it became abundantly clear that these decision makers are incredibly difficult to reach. Now, without giving away secret sauce, what are some of the things you do to try reach this incredibly hard to reach audience? So it goes back to the, the, the content that we're producing, which is really helpful for them. It's not about us. It's not about us screaming about, about how amazing Omnipresent is. It's really getting um, in front of them with content that is going to um, be awe-inspiring, basically, is what we are aiming for, right? Okay. So that they're almost coming to you. I also am a firm believer in... Um, industry associations, because I think, especially where we are, um, we're talking to a lot of international benefits people, international payroll HR folks, and there's a really strong network amongst those people. So, um, for example, the Global Payroll Association and the GPMI in the US are some of the best um, industry um, organizations that have been able to de- deliver value for us. So um, I think finding out where they are. Um, and then I think with the C-suite, you're right, they are overwhelmed. But I think it's about giving them content that they're not getting anywhere else. Yeah. That's what it has to be. Otherwise, it, you're not going to be relevant to them. You know what yeah. I mean? So there's no point. Yeah, no, it's, it's it certainly, it's a, I look at the great, I think the good news is, it's everyone has the challenge. It's not like it's unique. Absolutely. But it's trying to yeah. figure out like what is your, I guess, unique position. And again, yeah. one of the things when we spoke to some HR and TA leaders in companies we were trying to reach, a lot of them actually said to us, we want to be seen as a strategic partner in our business. A hundred percent. That's that's brilliant because there's your insight. You kind of go. And, well, and yeah. uh, exactly. And payroll changed, right? So as the minute COVID happened, payroll became the most important person in the room. And payroll had always been perceived as this back office. It, you only hear about it when it goes wrong and you never see the payroll people, right? Yes. Um, so suddenly payroll was being asked, if we shut down this factory, what happens? If we move everybody to um, Iceland, what happens? If, and all of these things that there was very hard to get content for, right? Because if you're an international company, a lot of the time your global payroll is on 17 different spreadsheets that you have to take two weeks to to collate, right? So being seen as strategic was a really important story that we were telling in Amidas really early on because it had never happened before, right? They were always the backroom people. And, And even HR for... Uh, you know, I've been working with HR people for a long time. They're still sometimes seen as the light and fluffy, yeah. which is absolutely not what they are. And with the the talent challenge we're having at the moment and the whole hybrid thing and, and this whole idea of like people thinking that culture is your chairs in the office. Like, so you, you can't have a culture if you're 100% remote. It's insane. So helping them again with content that's going to that's going to really help them. I think yeah. is, is really, really useful. Yeah. Um, I'd love to ask, maybe taking a step back, back a little bit, you know, in terms of some of the, I think the core marketing beliefs that you would have and kind of hold, yeah, maybe hold dear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the big one is um, we're here to impact the bottom line. 
and we need to be able to prove that. And number two is your relationship with sales is the most important relationship you're going to have. That is the most important thing. And getting sales on side is imperative, right? So making sure that the sales leadership, but also the individual AEs, BDRs, whatever they are, understand how and where you can help. Could Yeah, 100%. How do you go about doing that? Are there any kind of things that you've, you know, done through the years you've gone this, like that moment was a moment where that relationship changed with sales? Yeah, I think... I think um, the the bottom line stuff is all about the reporting, right? And obviously, marketing sourced is the one that I care about. I don't really care about marketing influence because everything should be marketing influence. So even saying that to a CFO is a little, wow, that's different because most marketing people want to be judged on influence, not source. Whereas I'm like, I don't give a shit about influence. I expect us to influence everything yeah and marketing source is the bit that i'm really and i need to be 30 percent of that and then i think with the sales people where you can really blow their hats off is with account-based marketing and demonstrating that if they're desperately trying to get into a particular company with a really simple um campaign to the main kind of um deal makers basically internally with the right messaging in a really you know, interesting way. I think that's what changes the game for a lot of people. Okay. They understand that marketing is more than advertising and swag, which is a lot of people think marketing is about. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do. Yeah. Can I get a t-shirt for my customer? No, that's yeah. not. We are. We do that. We do that. But that's yeah. not what we do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 We. Yeah. That's, uh, account-based marketing is. Um, it's a longer process, right? Yep. So, how then do you? Do you manage that? Because there is kind of a short term, and maybe I, I won't make any assumptions, like quarterly targets and goals. And oh, stuff. yeah, 100%. And I think so. So what I what I tend to do is show all the salespeople what the nurture campaigns are, what they're doing, what all the other campaigns are, what they're doing, what all the events are and all that kind of stuff. And really kind of tying that in a bow around how we're going to deliver 30% of the number for them. They're going to close it, but it's going to come from all, all the way from us. And I think um, by us leaning on data and being very um, strong on our kind of we're going to take responsibility for this. I do feel you are giving sales a sense of we're in this together and arm around the shoulder stuff rather than, you know, like in our world, it's every month, right? So we don't even work quarterly, we work monthly. So every first of the month, the clock resets and it's it's back to zero. And so we're really keen on um, making them feel like we're in it together. And whether that's providing amazing content for them, whether that's um, making sure the events we do are, you know, bring the most incredible people that they would never otherwise have seen. It's it's really showing them that we're a valued and valuable partner. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's very, yeah. I always do salespeople. Yeah, but salespeople can be really cynical, right? They can be really cynical about marketing because there's a lot of people who have met, you know, like I went to college with a lot of people who just wanted to work with Guinness or Nike or something, right? Whereas I was never that person. I never, even though I had all the pictures up on my wall, I never wanted to do that. It was much more about getting into the detail about how buying was done and how to influence it and the psychology and all that kind of stuff. And I do think you've a lot of people who either, you know, 
fell into marketing, which you were talking about earlier, um, didn't, um, you know, didn't really, you know, think about it from the start and just kind of moseyed into it or whatever. Whereas I think, um, I just think it's an incredible profession. And I think it is the absolute partner for sales and will make sales better, um, hands down. Yeah, yeah. And it's, um, I, I do love, and I'm fascinated by the, like the psychology of it as well and, and, yeah. and changing behaviors and, and going way, way back. I worked in, I worked in hotels and I remember this is very silly, but I remember like a dinner, you know, and if a customer was unhappy, that ability to kind of change that moment from them being unhappy to being happy, like is, is yeah. incredible. And there's a psychology in that, but it like a shift in behavior of somebody, you know, they're moving into your like moving category or, or you know thinking about the category or moving to your your product is an incredibly rewarding thing yeah. for marketing how do you kind of apply the psychology of it in your maybe not day to day because i think it's a more broader thing but kind of your sure. planning um so i think the if you think about abm for example right one of the um we had a major issue in skillsoft with the brand um so the brand was really well known but it was really well known for you know, male, pale and stale content, right? right? So they were all men, they were all sitting in a boardroom and there was no, like if you think about Googles and Facebooks who we were trying to sell to, there was no relevance for them at all. So we redid a load of our content and part of my job was to talk to a load of customers and figure out what it was they hated about the content, right? Which was great crack actually. <laughs> so um, the big thing they hated was the tech was out of date, the hairstyles were old and the locations they were filming in looked like PwC circa 1985. Right? Right. So there actually was nothing wrong with the content, the written content. It actually was how we were um, bringing it across, right? So we decided to go, we worked with a local company here in Dublin, Vstream, and they helped us develop a really cool background, did it all on green screen, got five team members in to record all the content. So it was almost like edutainment, right? Because there was one guy, it was like friends, there was one guy who was like a Joey, who every time he opened his mouth, it was a compliance nightmare, right? <laughs> we, had, we had trans actors, we had disabled actors, um, and it made it so relevant. And I just think, I think by giving that relevance to people, you are you are having a really grown up discussion with them rather than flogging stuff, right? Yeah. And I just think if you respect the customer and their knowledge and their awareness of what's happening in the market, what's happening, you know, like I know every single HR person wants the employee experience to be absolutely incredible. I know they don't want to put up male, pale and stale content because it reflects really badly on them. Yeah. So it's making them understand that you know what their your, their worries are your worries. That's that's what I think it needs to be. And that kind of shared arm around the shoulder stuff that we can help you. And and even when things do go wrong, you've got their back. And even if it's our fault or whether it's your fault, we'll figure it out and we'll just get it fixed. And it's not about it's not about kind of name blaming or naming yeah. or anything like that. It's much more about um we're here for you, you know. Yeah. And I think that's insanely important, especially in something like global payroll, because there is always errors and there is always mistakes and it's people's lives. It's rent checks bouncing, it's mortgages not going through. So it's yeah. really serious. So we take it like as deadly serious as you take it as the HR as the HR director. And it goes back to maybe something you said at the start in terms of that like just human people. Like it, that's what it's about, right? And the minute you lose 100%. that in you know, and it can happen. I think, you know, it can easily happen. I'd be interested to hear how you kind of 
we've talked a bit about it, but how you try to protect you and your team from it happening. Cause you know, often you're in spreadsheets and you're planning and you're, you know, presenting and how do, how do you find ways of making sure that you don't get lost in that and, and retain the human connection? Yeah. And I think one of the most important things we do is we do um, a lot of customer uh, surveys and we, whether it's done by somebody in our team or somebody else, and we do a lot of storytelling off the back of that. So it's really important to us that we understand what their pain is. So obviously COVID was like very clearly there was an awful lot of pain an awful lot of the payroll people were deemed to be, um, um, what's the word for the workers were deemed to be, um, like they were equivalent of nurses and doctors, right? Oh, yeah, front they were frontline yeah, yeah, workers, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were, and and so a lot of those people were working in offices and stuff like that and uh, doing loads of hours and all that kind of stuff. And we were right alongside them yeah. and making sure that they felt supported. So rather than a provider of a solution, you're there as a partner. partner. And I know that sounds cheesy, but it's so important. And yeah. By by the language you use, by the way you act, by the events you invite them to, it's just so important that you're seen as you understand their concerns and you're right there with them. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um, it yeah, people are people. Um, That's my point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and especially with COVID, right? So. All of a sudden, I'm in payroll for 20 years, and I'm a frontline worker, and um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to pay people on a certain day. All that kind of stuff is really stressful. Yeah. So sitting down with them and taking some of that stress off them is magic. Yeah, hundred percent agree. And it's um, I'd love to just, I'm, I'm kind of get back to beliefs, and you've talked about the ones that you kind of hold true and maybe firm to. Are there any that you kind of have had that you've kind of gone? Ooh, when I look back on that, I'm not. I'm not sure I was right with that one. Um, is there any that I have? Um, one of the things that I used to have is that um, the brand investment isn't really worth isn't really worth an awful lot. You actually are judged by how you speak and what you talk about and all that kind of stuff. But I actually have changed my mind on that. So because I was surrounded by all the people who want to work for Guinness and Diageo and Nike, I really had an allergy (laughs) to uh, brand and, you know, advertising and all that kind of stuff. But I actually think um, when you're especially for us, right, we're two and a half year old company, the brand's really young. When you're trying to establish that brand, I actually think there is the place with really good research there is a place for actual just basic branding that's not necessarily connected with demand generation or um and 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 it's really interesting in amidas you know uh rory keller who was the ceo um had got shane lowry as a brand ambassador right which at the time we were we were three years old before I came in um, and I thought that was bonkers. That was absolutely <laughs> bonkers. But when you saw the reaction of people who this guy who's kind of growing and out of nowhere, exactly like me just were, um, I just think there is actually a really strong element of um, building that brand long term, you know, and I think like we obviously we couldn't use Shane Lowry during COVID because nobody could meet him but we did a whiskey tasting one night with the 
some some customers and we were kind of thinking oh they want to ask Shane loads of loads of uh, questions and all that kind of stuff and uh, actually all they wanted to do was get to the whiskey and talk to the Jameson brand guy right but uh, but I do think the Shane Lowry idea which I would never have done in a million years made us look bigger made us look more mature um, even for the people who didn't care about golf, it was a bit kind of like, wow, these guys really are confident in what they're going to do, which we were. Yeah. So it was almost like finding an embodiment of our of our brand, which I thought was, which I, which is really cool. And again, nothing I would have done, you know. That's really interesting because actually one of the things I did want to ask you was about brand because, yeah. you know, there is, um. Yeah, it's a very difficult one, again, in the B2B space, because, you know, if you look at consumer products, and, and I'm kind of countering myself here a bit, but like consumer products, you go, right, well, you're on TV and distribution yep. in Tesco and whatever, like whatever. Um, yeah. But for B2B, it's, it's seen as harder. And then there's a belief that, again, what we were talking about before, that, well, we should really only turn up in the airport lounge or that, you know, like, and that should be our, <laughs> our branding. Yeah. But there's arguments that you should, you should do more. And I, I was curious about the Shane Lowry piece because I, I was fascinated when I saw that. And I think, you know, my view with Shane, he's like one of the most likable people in our sport as well. He like, is just, and his, his um, caddy, we had, so like we had, obviously Rory would know a lot of sports people, but uh, we had a, um, uh, Rory's stories, we used to call it on a Friday where the caddy, his cat, I can't even remember his name, the caddy started talking about his relationship with Shane and literally I could have listened to him for five hours. Like yeah. it was just the, one of our, um, one of our values was humility. Okay. It, it is in omnipresent too, but um, no ego. Like we really, really focused on no ego and anybody who did have an ego was kind of explained to pretty quickly. We didn't want that. And Shane's just like that. And so is his caddy. Like, it's just like, no ego whatsoever. We got him to do some beautiful videos for us about the importance of family and stuff like that. And he is exactly who you see on the screen. He's just, he's so nice. And so, um, yeah, he's just so normal. So yeah. normal. And yeah. as you say, perfect, like, you know, embodiment of the Amidas yeah. brand as like, okay, this, you know, this is exactly to represent to represent and, and what it said to the market was that we're coming right yeah it was really kind of ballsy of the guys to do this because it was kind of like um it was really kind of clear that we were going to be um deadly serious from the very start which was yeah. great yeah and a big bet like that's a really big risky bet yep and during covid we couldn't use them yeah except for virtual right so we did some really smart things um we did some videos with him where he really talked about family and he talked about his caddy and the partnership and all that kind of stuff, which we really, Amidas really held close to our kind of how we treated customers. And then we did a couple of virtual events, but nothing major, like, you know, um, but it was just so important to be associated with his humility and his empathy and his authenticity was just incredible. Yeah. It's such a lovely guy. I, I, I met him. I'm sure he still remembers it once and got a photo <laughs> with him, me, my dad, and my brother. And it was just, oh, that's uh, cool. it was, like, you know, like it was after the open. I was like, Oh my God. Yeah. That's incredible. It wasn't. Wow. Like, yeah. So he's just oh, yeah, my gosh, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. just love seeing him and just even, you know, anyway, Twitter and all that. And uh, even also not as a, <clears throat> excuse me, not as a golfer, I would really appreciate him because the sports person he is, right? Yes. So I've no interest in golf, but I think he's he's extraordinary because of how he 
how he talks and he's so yeah. open and he's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, yeah. I kind of talked about big bets and Shane being probably one. Um, are there any other big bets you've had through through your career that you've maybe haven't worked out so well and that you've learned from? Um, yeah, hiring people. I was really shit at hiring people for a while. <laughs> like really shit. So um, I, um, I think... You know the way you kind of believe everything people say in their interview and then they get into the office and they can't write a press release or they expect there to be a, a team around them and they expect an office and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, I was really bad at hiring people for a while and um, I got much, much better um, by uh, doing a lot of reading about stuff and practicing it all the time. So nice. I would get other people to meet them. Um, in in Omnipresent, we have a values interview, which is just about our four values and done by somebody who no, knows nothing about marketing yeah. to see if they would fit. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things I was absolutely crap at. Um, I happened to just hit pay dirt with a lot of people, certainly in Iona. They were just amazing, incredible team. Um, but I had some horrifically expensive war stories where – it clearly there wasn't a fit and it was only in the rearview mirror I could see that. So that was something I kind of did an awful lot of work on. Right. Okay. And so that's kind of the, I think that's really interesting because it's, it's, it's finding, I guess, knowing that, right. Like that openness that you had to kind of go, Oh gosh, I need to, I need to do something. Oh, I think no. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I assume everybody loves marketing. Like I do, everybody reads all the books I do about marketing. Everybody is, um, you know, and, and then you meet someone who comes across really well in an interview and has been in normal places, but they just, um, yeah, it just isn't right. And, and the one good thing I do, I do move on it really fast. I do. I, I recognize my mistake really fast. It's happening less and less. Um, the last kind of, 10 years or so I've hired really good people but um, yeah I was garbage at that garbage <laughs> and it's because I suppose I love marketing so yeah. much my assumption is oh my god right we're so lucky to be in this job right <laughs> and they're going mm, yeah and I'm listening to myself in the interview rather than listening to them which is a car crash waiting to happen like you know what I mean it's dreadful so yeah oh, that's brilliant uh, and also like I think with, you know with that sometimes it you know it isn't just it just isn't a fit and it's not right yeah. for that person to be because then they get past like you know maybe probationary period and then they're Absolutely. in a role and they're like they're afraid to leave and it's yeah exactly terrible. And, like, and, and I really feel they're as uncomfortable as I am yeah. because they're not sitting there going I'm acing this they know <laughs> it's not working out and they're thinking oh my god what have I done I've left yeah. this other job and I'm going oh my god what have I done I've made them leave this other job yeah. and, and so what I usually like I firmly believe you know people aren't bad they're not inherently bad they're just in the wrong place or the wrong job and so yeah, I just I just think that's a that's that's one of the things. And and a great uh, mentor of mine, Bill, would have always said to me in really senior roles, you have a fifty fifty chance of it not being right. With all the research you do, all the if if you get the psychometric tests, if you get whatever it is, it can still, from a culture perspective or whatever, it's not a fit. Wow. That's terrifying. It's dreadful, right? It's dreadful. And everybody talks about going with their gut. And then other people talk about, no, I only look at the data. And, you know, it's a bit of both, you yeah. know. And eventually you kind of have to take a chance then, you know. But, um, but yeah, I firmly believe that people are, 
um, you know, people who aren't working out are just as uncomfortable as I am. And they they want an exit strategy yeah, because yeah. they're so uncomfortable and they, they need to be taken care of and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's that's my view. Yeah, the relief for them, you know, yeah. can, can be palpable. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. You mentioned there um, reading and, you know, I, I get the impression that you're a continual learner and yeah. you, you read. Are there things that you've read recently, like books or anything that you're like, absolute must must read or or not yeah. recently yeah yeah yeah. so um uh, there's this lady called kim scott who's ex uh, facebook and she had cheryl sandberg as manager and she was doing a presentation to some of the senior team in facebook and they were walking back to their offices and cheryl said sure you say um a lot when you speak she's like yeah, yeah i do it's just something i do and she went yeah yeah but uh, i think we should try and maybe manage that out what do you think no 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 it's just it's just something i do it's fine it's fine it's fine and then um cheryl said you sound stupid when you do it so kim was like what the <laughs> and she got her she got her mentoring she got her all this kind of stuff so there's this book called radical candor yes. which is about how um, especially in this world where we're not seeing everybody face to face. You can't, you don't know how tall anybody is, which I met loads of the team last week. And I was like, oh my God, you're so tall. Or not. And then you have to be really, really quiet. But um, that radical candor of kind of being able to have that discussion from a, uh, and it's also to do with, you know, people who weren't working out. It's, um, it's being able to have that discussion through a, a, a lens of love that I really care about you and I want it to be okay and let me help you, you know, and I think that's insanely important. So she's written another one about diversity, inclusion and belonging in the workplace. That's coming very soon. Um, so she's incredible. I also, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to, I read a lot of about data. So there's okay. um, a brilliant book about um, the data on women and how like every drug has been tested on that and then every seatbelt has been tested. you know women aren't used in any of that thing so that's fascinating that's really, really and i read a lot about women in leadership and the challenges they're in and how to get more women into leadership roles because i kind of have a in my back of my mind i'm eventually going to do a 23 minute TED talk about it because i've talked about it so much and it's it's de devastatingly depressing on how early that starts and how um little girls uh don't want to um be seen as being having too much of an opinion because they'll be seen as bully blah 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 yeah. so there's loads of stuff there going on and then i read a load of fiction john Connolly's my favorite writer he's an irish guy um but yeah i kind of anything big coming out on the on the marketing side i just find just fascinating because you can learn stuff and then articles like the harvard business review article is just incredible so yeah, yeah. i do a lot of reading a lot of reading i um I, I will ask you where you find the time, but I do want to touch on the <laughs> women in, in leadership yeah. piece. Um, I Look, I, I'm obviously a man, um, <laughs> but what's been really interesting, actually, as I've been, you know, doing this podcast and, and meeting people, um, I've probably found it harder to have uh, female marketing leaders come on and speak on really? podcasts. Yeah. Wow. Um, and maybe that's my fault and I'm not uh, as connected as, I, as I'd like yeah. but I just so it was what it's kind of been one of those things for me I'm like this is because I, I feel you know um it's really important that, that oh yeah 100% kind of talked about and, and yeah. 
kind of celebrating that and, and, and recognizing the strong leaders we have, like our CMO, Jessica, um, he joined about maybe, God, maybe two years, a year and a half ago. I remember my daughter seeing her on a Zoom call and going, who's that? And I said, that's my boss's boss. And she was like, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. that moment. Now, might be no interest in marketing or whatever, but, but it it's matter. really important to see it. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So what are the things that people, like even thinking in marketing, like what are things we can do to, to kind of, you know, like encourage and, and promote and, you know, as a, as a man, be a better ally for, you know, for women in marketing leadership? Yeah, so there's kind of three in the, in the, pre-TED talk that I talk about, there's three things. There, One is that um, we have to do more um, ourselves, right? So we have to not sit on the on the surround of the of the um, room. We have to sit in the centre of the table. Um, we have to um, speak more. Um, and from an allyship, we have to make sure that if somebody makes a point, a woman makes a point and she's interrupted, which happens, like, I can't remember the number, but it's a ridiculous amount of time, that we go, hold on a second, let's just let Tara continue her thought. Um, or uh, if if what happen, often happens in a meeting is that I make a suggestion and then a, and then everybody's like, nah. and then a guy makes it later on, everybody's like, oh, that's a really good idea. So uh, calling that out, I think, is really important as well. Um, having a balanced interview panel so it not being all men I think is really important um, and then there's a whole HR thing that needs to happen around um, performance reviews you come across this is aggressive how on earth can I respond to that kind of feedback men about 1% of men get that feedback 60 something percent of women get that feedback so it's non-actionable non-specific information right whereas men are giving really specific actionable information about what they're doing wrong the other thing is on job descriptions. There's a whole thing uh, where you can put your job description through an app now, and it tells you where there's where there's overtly masculine or overtly feminine. And oh, wow. so we what we kill. Um, this is an insane environment for you know, like all of the kind of blokey stuff that women will immediately shy away from. And then in addition to that, really empathetic and caring and all that kind of stuff for a job that maybe a man won't want to go for. Um, and then the other thing, which I think is really important, is on Gmail, you have a app that tells you if you're using limiting language. So I just thought, would you mind if, sorry about you know, so there's lots of stuff we can do ourselves, right? Lots of technology coming out. But if you think about it, right, AI is going to be a shit show, right? Because AI is being written by men, yes. right? Lots of white men. So if you think about the Apple Watch that came out, one of the most amazing pieces of engineering that's ever come out, right? Tracks everything, right? Did not have a period tracker on it, yeah. right? insane and clearly there wasn't a woman in the room let alone near the room right so everything's been seen with ai where bots and all that get sexist racist within a very short period of time because the you are actually coding in the the conscious and unconscious and biases that people have and i definitely think some people have very conscious biases and it is being coded into everything we're doing right now and that scares me a lot and because i think it's going to take a long time to unwind that and i think it's um i've i've uh, done a couple of posts on it so i think that's really important and then i think the last piece is around kids and and there's the whole if she can't see it she, she won't be it but um 
the way the teacher treats the boys. Asher, he's just boys will be boys, leave him off. Whereas if a girl came up and lamped somebody on the face, she'd be put in suspension for a week. So there's a real um, difference in how uh, children are treated. So, so is my son gifted? I'm not kidding. Is searched for something like 10 times as much as is my daughter gifted, right? So like it's it's the parents, it's the teachers, it's the school, it's the um it's the after school activity, it's everything. You have to be really aware of of what they're hearing on every single day. And that's exhausting as you can imagine and yeah. really hard to change because it's community based stuff and it's really difficult. So you have to make sure that that's never going to happen by the the job descriptions and by making sure that you have a balanced group of people. I mean, uh, you know, there was a whole piece of research done when the, when the um, uh, balance boards came out in, in the UK and where people had to have one person on the board. And a lot of the times there was a brilliant piece of research Lena did about um, the answers they got when they said, why don't you have a woman on the board? And it was things like, we have one, isn't that enough? There aren't enough women out there who can be board members. And a lot of the time that is true because they're looking for CEOs, right? And if you think about like this 4.8% of the yeah. Fortune 500 have a women leader. So you're looking in the wrong place there. You have to open up the the um, the pool to other people who are not CEOs who are going to be able to be on the board. So yeah. I think that's really important. Yeah, so I, I could talk about that for an hour. No, yeah. I find the, um, sorry, I find that board representation thing like phenomenal. Like it just doesn't make sense, you know. No. And it's, anyway, I, I agree with yeah, you. Yeah, and everything for obviously white women, which I am, is like 0.6% worse than than for uh, women of color and yeah. and including men of color. So it's it's just, it's really... I've kind of accepted the fact that it's not going to be solved in my generation, but I'm hoping my kids can help solve it. I've had some amazingly, uh, I don't know what you call them, like just like moment stopping conversations with some colleagues based in the US, um, you know, women of colour, um, yeah. who the stories they told, I was like, I, I can't even yeah. no. start to... Exactly. I can hear, but I can't understand. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I, when we have twins and we have, um, so they're 17 and then Lily is 14. But when the twins were 11, I got an amazing job opportunity to work in Skillsoft. And my husband decided we had a conversation. I said, look, I really want to do this job. Will you stay home? And he was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And the attitude of him, is Tara still away? tilted head syndrome aren't you brilliant you know what I mean it is just unbelievable because there are so few men at the pickup there's so few men in the in the one-to-one meetings with the teacher like it's just unreal so we are really kind of trying to demonstrate to the kids that it's possible to do but the stuff that's been said to isn't he great you know the stuff that I get all the time unreal yeah unreal no, yeah. he's a dad. Yeah, exactly. He's not babysitting his own freaking kids. Okay, yeah. he's a father. Like it's hilarious. But um, yeah, it's really he finds it very funny. But um, yeah, it makes me go red and start to scream into a pillow somewhere. But anyway. yeah, yeah, when he's in the pillow. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, listen, we are fast approaching the end of our conversation. I I did have a couple more questions. I I think one was just 
Is there work out there at the moment that you're really admiring? Is there anyone kind of doing stuff that you think this is amazing work, whether it be B2B or just kind of in general marketing space? Um, let me think quickly. I kind of like, I know it's obvious, but I kind of love what Apple are doing and that they've stayed, you know, it's very identifiable what Apple does. I really like them. Um, I also think there's um, there's a lot more work being done around great content that's ungated. So, you know, HubSpot has always kind of been the, the main person who does that. Um, and they always felt that, you know, even if you don't use their tools, you can be a better marketer and all that kind yeah. of stuff. So putting that incredible content, the whole leadership content out there is amazing. Um, I tend to look at ads for sexism and racism. So I usually post on a Friday. Oh my God, I found another one. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm more on the negative side. I'm afraid. But, yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think anybody who's kind of, who's really helping me as a marketer trying yeah. to get better. And I would tend to read the HubSpot newsletter when it comes in and things like that. So I think they're good. Yeah. Yeah. And actually it's really interesting. A system one, do some incredible uh, research through their ad testing tool. Oh, and cool. kind of, um, they, they did one recently around, it was in June, so it was around um, Pride Month. And looking yeah. at ads that were, um, you know, about Pride Month and, and how they resonate with consumers. They do some amazing stuff as well. Cool. Of, yeah, well, really that. interesting on Pride Month, the thing I posted on Pride Month was that there was a, um, so all these people were like, you know, um, saying how incredibly important it was and all that kind of stuff. And then there was this bot on LinkedIn that, or Twitter, I'm sure it was, that was posting that they pay women X percent less. They pay women of color more X percent less and all that kind of stuff. So that it was really calling them out for just, you know, it yeah. being Pride Month for just that month. But actually, we generally treat people completely unfairly. I loved that. Yeah. I thought that was, that might actually change some stuff, you know. But I still see it every day. Like people yeah. are like, you know, would you not be just happy that you've got the job rather than needing to be paid? It's like, so yeah, that's another, that's another conversation. Yes, I'm so grateful. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I should pay you. I yeah. should pay you. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah from, from my allowance. Um, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Two, two last questions. My previous guest, uh, Rich Petrich, who's from uh, Value of We, and they're an agency that look into kind of Web3 and tech. And yes. He had a really interesting question. He was like, you know, the tech is developing so fast, it's accelerating. How do large ships, you know, with lots of processes yeah. and, you know, lots of stakeholders move and try to keep up with the accelerating changes in, and developments in tech? So um, we have a really strong innovation team that's left alone and they come up with really cool product stuff or really cool and uh, new market stuff or whatever it is. And some of the brightest people on in the company work there. It's led by um, an amazing guy. Um, and basically he is, he and they are thinking about three, five years out while the rest of us are thinking about the next month, the next quarter, maybe the next year. So he has really got, and I think if you don't have that in your company, there's something seriously wrong and they need to be paid group that they don't have deliverables you know next tuesday mm -hmm. but actually they really are thinking about what omnipresent is going to look like in five years three years that kind of thing so that 
so that and they're also looking at the the competitors they're looking at what where there's going to be convergence all that kind of stuff and i think if you don't have somebody who wakes up every morning thinking about what the company is going to be like in that time frame i think you've you you're not going to get you're going to fumble your way into yeah. that rather than very deliberately saying okay this is where we're going to go so they they um present the leadership team they um probably present to the board about kind of the overarching thing of what we're going to do um and it's magic it is absolutely magical because the rest of us are like buried yeah. in this month and are they you made up of to pay people product marketing is it a- lots of product people and then i would dip in every now and then yeah. if they need on the marketing side um but yeah it's dazzling like if you leave the right people in a yeah. room and 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 what they will come to you with with what they think we should do is just changes the dna of the organization yeah and probably like can create a culture as well you know amongst others like 100 percent, yeah, yeah and moving yeah. fast and it's actually it's really interesting one of the things i when i came in like obviously um we're at series b we're 400 people so we're starting putting processes in place and i've noticed that there's there's definitely people are a bit process happy and we need to be much more moving much more quickly so and everybody talks about the sprints and the two-week sprints and that we're all going to do you know we're all going to do um that two-week thing where we kind of do stuff every two weeks like the product people do makes a lot of sense for developers does not make sense for marketing people at all and i have a real problem with it and this nonsense of you know that um that we're going to be uh we're just going to work on two-week sprints because then you're not thinking about a year's time Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And and sometimes that can then cause, personally, I think problems because you you can do these things and then nothing ever happens with them, and then everyone's just like, "What's the point?" Exactly. Here we go again. Yeah. And I I I had been on meetings where like there's a there's a a sprint meeting every two weeks where everybody's on the call just reading out a freaking Excel. Like I can read out an Excel spreadsheet. What What are you going to do with this problem that we're going to talk about now? You know, I just think. Yeah. I think the the whole sprint thing and. And all of that idea is, is overdone for, for marketing people. I just don't think it's it's needed. I think we need a different thing. That's, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you if you would have a question for, we don't know who it's going to be, my next guest. Um, so I would love to know what company you would love to have worked in as the marketing person at the very beginning. Oh, I love it. So if you had an opportunity to be like in the room with Steve Jobs, I wouldn't want to be because I think I'd kill him. But you know what I mean? What would they want to do? Where yeah. would they want to be? And yeah, that would be cool to know. Awesome. Amazing. Tar- thank you so Oh, do you know what? I was going to ask you and because we're out of time, but where do you find the time to do everything that you do? <laughs> um, so I think if you think, so I'm obsessed with time management, right? It's one of the things I'm really obsessed with my dad died when he was 46 so I always had this sense of I have so little time I need to do everything and I really do I can't and I'm 53 now and I still like I'm borrowed time so I need you know what I mean all that kind of stuff so I am obsessed with um not wasting time as much as I can so I limit Instagram I read um at every opportunity that I get I go to bed early and read I limit tv I only watch stuff that I absolutely adore. We go to the movies twice a week with the kids because we all love movies. Um, so, yeah, I just think I absolutely believe you can find the time if you if you actually wrote down all the things you did. Um, I, I just think you can find the time. Amazing. And with that, 
we're at time. Tara, thank you so much. This has just been incredibly enjoyable. I have just loved this conversation. Thanks a million. Thanks, Connor. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. I left that recording absolutely buzzing. Honestly, Tara has such energy and passion for what she does. She shared with such honesty her mistakes and learnings and also how she approaches her marketing. It's clear Tara loves B2B marketing, but doesn't view it in that lens. It's marketing and it's two people. That human connection comes through in talking to Tara. Uh, Of course, what you won't know or have seen is what is behind Tara. Uh, She has this wall uh, poster on her wall that says, life is beautiful. And I think that really resonates and comes through when you speak to Tara. She's such an amazing energy. So I hope you enjoyed and got a lot from that episode. So thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. Follow us on Twitter, that's underscore marketing. And if you or someone you know will be a great guest for the podcast, get in touch. I will add the email address into the show description. So for me, Connor Byrne, until the next episode, take care.